This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. Uh, my name is John Fleetham, and I'm a physician and clinical scientist in the Division of Respiratory Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Chris Turnbull, who's the first author of a recent article entitled Effect of Supplemental Oxygen on Blood Pressure in Obstructive Sleep Apnea, a Randomized CPAP Withdrawal Trial. Uh, Dr. Turnbull is a clinical research fellow in the Oxford Center of Respiratory Disease in Oxford, UK. Thank you for joining us today, Chris. Um, before we start discussing the details of your study, can you outline the relationship between systemic hypertension and obstructive sleep apnea and the potential causes of the daytime increases in blood pressure? Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, yes, so there's a clear relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and systemic hypertension. In the year 2000, several studies were published which showed a clear increase in both diagnoses of systemic hypertension in patients with obstructive sleep apnea and also of increased blood pressure in patients with obstructive sleep apnea. Subsequent to this, there have been randomized control trials which have shown that the main treatment of obstructive sleep apnea, CPAP therapy, reduces systemic blood pressure. Whilst the relationship between obstructive sleep apnea and um, hypertension is well established, the underlying physiological mechanisms for this increase in daytime systolic blood pressure are not understood. There are two main theories as to how obstructive sleep apnea causes increases in daytime blood pressure. And these are really either via intermittent hypoxia-mediated sympathetic activation or arousal-mediated sympathetic activation. Now, in your study, you used CPAP withdrawal as an experimental model of obstructive sleep apnea. Can you describe this model and how it's previously been used to examine the effect of different interventions? The CPAP withdrawal is, is a very powerful intervention that's been previously used to examine both the physiological consequences of OSA and to test new therapies for obstructive sleep apnea. Most of the trials are focused on physiological consequences, and that's, um, most of those studies have been conducted by Professor Kohler and Professor Stradling. The main patients who are included in CPAP withdrawal trials are patients with moderate to severe obstructive sleep apnea who've been established on effective CPAP therapy for at least the last one year. This ensures that patients included have adequate treatment of obstructive sleep apnea at baseline. Patients are randomized to either two weeks of continued CPAP, so continued treatment and effective treatment of their OSA, or two weeks of a sham therapy, either a sham therapeutic device or sham CPAP. By taking patients who are well-known users and good users of CPAP, it ensures compliance with CPAP therapy which is not possible in traditional RCT-designed trials with CPAP-naive um, patients where compliance is often an issue. As I've mentioned, um, Professor Kohler in Zurich and Professor Stradling here in Oxford together have pioneered this model of CPAP withdrawal. During 
CPAP withdrawal, they've demonstrated the physiological consequences of OSA, demonstrating endothelial dysfunction, sympathetic activation, and a marked rise in both morning blood pressure and morning heart rate. In addition, they've used this trial to show a novel breath signature um, with returning OSA, and they've used it to demonstrate that the traditional biomarkers of systemic oxidative stress are not increased during returning OSA. Finally, they've used it um, to analyze a no novel therapeutic device, uh, the Provent Expiratory Positive Airway Pressure Device, and showed that this was ineffective in stopping returning OSA during CPAP withdrawal. Now, can you describe your study patients and methodology in, um, in your current paper? So in our current paper, looking at the SOC study, um, this was a single-center randomized controlled crossover study, which investigated the effects of overnight supplemental oxygen on morning blood pressure in patients with moderate to severe OSA. Patients um, underwent CPAP withdrawal in a similar model to previously, and we included patients with known moderate to severe OSA who'd been on CPAP treatment for at least one year and who were compliant with CPAP with a mean average usage of over four hours per night. Prior to randomization in this trial, um, we screened patients, and in this screening week, we were looking for two things. In three nights um, of screening pulse oximetry, on CPAP, we were looking to ensure that their obstructive sleep apnea is well controlled, and we defined this as an ODI of less than 10 on each of these nights. And secondly, on the subsequent four nights, we were looking to see that their obstructive sleep apnea returned, and we would define this as an ODI of greater than 20 on one of the four nights. Following on from this screening um, part of the trial, patients went back onto their normal CPAP treatment for two weeks. Um, prior to attending an initial study visit where they were allocated uh, treatment with a randomized treatment order. At this allocation, patients were either allocated supplemental oxygen or supplemental air or sham, which was delivered at a high flow rate of five liters per minute via identical concentrators and either a face mask or nasal cannulae. Patient used each intervention for 14 nights and at the end of the first intervention, patients went back onto their CPAP for at least two weeks prior to crossing over. Our primary outcome was home morning systolic and diastolic blood pressure. And we measured this um, at home with patients measuring their blood pressure in triplicate in the early morning, shortly after waking, in the three days prior to their baseline and follow-up visits. We also had a number of secondary and exploratory outcomes, which included office blood pressure, objective and subjective daytime sleepiness, overnight pulse oximetry on every night of the intervention, overnight polygraphy on the penultimate night of each intervention, overnight urinary metaadrenaline and normetaadrenaline um, as biomarkers of sympathetic activation, and serum bicarbonate at each study visit as an integrated surrogate marker of our arterial carbon dioxide levels. Thank you, that's very clear. Now, what were the important study findings? We showed that supplemental oxygen virtually abolished the rise in home early morning systolic and diastolic blood pressure during CPAP withdrawal, which was seen with sham. These changes were also found with the later office blood pressure recordings. 
looking at some of our secondary outcome measures, we showed that supplemental oxygen markedly attenuated um, the ODI as a measure of intermittent hypoxia, whilst it had no significant effect on the AHI or on daytime sleepiness. Therefore, we, we, we think that these um, changes in the blood pressure are as a consequence of attenuating intermittent hypoxia rather than any secondary effect on the AHI or on sleepiness. Now, there have been previous studies um, in this field. How do your findings compare with the previous animal and human studies? And if there are differences, what's the potential explanation for these? Much of the important work looking at the effect of intermittent hypoxia has come from the lab of Eugene Fletcher. His lab showed in a rodent model that intermittent hypoxia caused marked diurnal increases in blood pressure. His group went on to show the central role of the carotid body and the sympathetic nervous system in these diurnal increases in blood pressure. The Grenoble group have subsequently shown similar increases in daytime blood pressure in an experimental model where healthy human volunteers were exposed to intermittent hypoxia. Again, these increases were associated with marked sympathetic activation. Whilst this work seems to suggest a central role for intermittent hypoxia in OSA-associated daytime blood pressure elevations, other work in patients with OSA has cast doubt on the relevance of these studies. The heartbeat study and another smaller RCT did not show any changes in blood pressure with supplemental oxygen in treatment-naive patients with OSA. Therefore, others have proposed that arousal-mediated sympathetic activation is more important in determining daytime elevations in blood pressure in OSA. This is certainly the case with the acute blood pressure rises seen overnight in OSA. Our study sheds new light on this argument and supports a central role of intermittent hypoxia in daytime blood pressure elevations in OSA, as was suggested by the previous work of Fletcher's group and the Grenoble group. One key difference in our work from these previous intermittent hypoxia experiments was that we were not able to prove a significant role of the sympathetic nervous system in intermittent hypoxia-mediated blood pressure changes. However, I think it's important to note that sympathetic activation was a secondary outcome in our trial, which was, uh, not, our study was not powered for. The results of our study do differ from the heartbeat study, and there are a few important methodological differences to consider. I think the most important difference is probably in the patients we included. In our study, we were able to include patients with more significant intermittent hypoxemia who were excluded from the, from the longer heartbeat study due to ethical grounds of not treating these patients with CPAP. We also gave oxygen at, at a higher flow rate of 5 litres per minute versus 2 litres per minute in the heartbeat study. So I think we're dealing with patients with more severe intermittent hypoxia in our study, and we were treating them with uh, a greater amount of supplemental oxygen. I think it's worth highlighting that another important difference is that um, we were only using supplemental oxygen for two weeks versus 12 weeks in the heartbeat study. We also um, had a highly compliant group of patients, and the average usage of oxygen in our study was over seven hours a night versus five hours per night in, in the heartbeat study. I think whilst there are these methodological differences, we cannot know for certain um, whether there might be an effect um, in the longer term of supplemental oxygen that we've observed that we cannot observe in our model. And, and I think further work is needed to look at the long-term effects. 
So what is your proposed mechanism of the attenuation of blood pressure rises by oxygen during CPAP withdrawal? I'm going to turn this question slightly on its head and instead answer the question of why intermittent hypoxia in OSA might lead to increases in daytime blood pressure, as I think this helps to answer your question. Again, I think the best data comes from the experimental models of Fletcher's group and the Grenoble group. And as already discussed, um, they've shown that diurnal increases in blood pressure are dependent on the carotid body, the sympathetic nervous system, and the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone axis. And they showed by removing the carotid body, by removing the adrenal medulla, um, by chemically blocking the sympathetic nervous system, or by denervating the renal artery, that they abolished the rise in blood pressure seen here. I think another possible argument is that um, there may be a role for oxidative stress, and oxidative stress and inflammation has been proposed um, within the carotid body to underlie the elevated blood pressure seen with intermittent hypoxia. Having said that, this, we, we were not able to show significant differences in our secondary and exploratory outcomes looking at um, sympathetic activation and inflammation in, in our study. So whilst these mechanisms are speculative, uh, we haven't shown these to date in, in our study, and, and the exact mechanisms of blood pressure rises in patients with OSA are still to be fully established. Now, supplemental oxygen had no impact on either subjective or objective daytime sleepiness. What does this suggest as a probable cause of daytime sleepiness in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? I think this is likely to suggest that daytime sleepiness is a consequence of arousal-mediated sleep fragmentation or another non-hypoxia-mediated phenomenon. In our study, the AHI did not significantly change suggesting that arousals were therefore unlikely to have changed. However, whilst intermittent hypoxia had no effect on the return of daytime sleepiness over the short term of our trial, it is possible that other longer-term effects um, may exist. It's possible that intermittent hypoxia may contribute to cognitive impairness and sleepiness in a manner that may not be reversible. However, this didn't seem to be um, the most important mechanism behind daytime sleepiness in our study. Now, there's quite a high dropout rate in this trial compared to some of the previous withdrawal trials. Uh, why was this, and do you think it has any impact on your conclusions? There was quite a high dropout rate in this study, and, and I think it's important to mention that not all patients with obstructive sleep apnea are able to participate in CPAP withdrawal trials, as simply many patients find themselves unable to stop CPAP therapy due to its significant benefits. However, in, in previous trials um, from those patients who felt able to participate um, and who were randomized in previous CPAP withdrawal trials, less than 1% of them subsequently withdrew. In our SOX trial, we saw that dropout rates post-randomization were much higher at 13 out of 38 patients. And I think there are a couple of reasons to explain this increased post-randomization dropout in the SOC study. Firstly, the SOC study was longer than previous withdrawal trials, and it had two intervention arms. In total, patients were withdrawing from CPAP for a total of four weeks compared to two weeks in, in most previous studies. Secondly, participants who entered into the SOX trial withdrew from CPAP on both occasions. In previous trials, patients were either randomized to continued CPAP or sham CPAP, so therefore half of all participants were 
allocated to therapeutic CPAP. And I think this will also um, contribute to the higher dropout rate in, in our current study. I think it's worth noting that this crossover design and study was quite arduous for participants. However, having said this, I don't think that these dropouts greatly impact the conclusions that can be drawn from this study, as it was a physiological mechanistic study uh, rather than a more real-world intention to treat therapeutic trial. In terms of any lessons that we can learn from the patients who did withdraw, um, they tended to have more severe OSA and be more obese. And perhaps um, this suggests that our conclusion should be restricted from those with the most severe and uh, those most obese patients with OSA. Now, in your trial, you only measured blood pressure twice, once in the early and once in the late morning. Um, did you consider uh, performing more frequent measurements, say with 24-hour blood pressure monitoring? We did consider 24 ambulatory blood pressure monitoring, but decided against this as an outcome measure. As we were measuring blood pressure on a daily basis throughout four weeks of intervention, we thought that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring would be particularly burdensome for participants. We were also worried about the potential for ambulatory monitoring to cause arousals during sleep. And um, these arousals in, in, in themselves tend to elevate blood pressure during sleep. We were therefore worried that of the potential effects that ambulatory blood pressure monitoring might have on morning blood pressure. In previous CPAP withdrawal trials, the morning period um, has been shown to be the period of the day that's most affected by OSA-mediated increase in blood pressure, and so we decided to focus on, on this time period. Uh, were there any potential deleterious effects of supplemental oxygen? I think the major uh, potential deleterious effects of supplemental oxygen that we noticed was an increase in venous um, base excess. In our study, we used this as an integrated surrogate marker of carbon dioxide levels. Whilst our patients did not have ventilatory failure, I think that any future trials assessing for any potential therapeutic benefits of supplemental oxygen therapy in OSA need to carefully monitor carbon dioxide levels. I think it's also important to mention again that supplemental oxygen did not stop returning daytime sleepiness during CPAP withdrawal. And therefore, I think this may limit how useful supplemental oxygen could be as a future therapeutic option. Certainly, I think it, it would not be a suitable, suitable option for those with significant daytime sleepiness. Now, you mentioned this was a physiological mechanistic study. What are the potential clinical benefits of supplemental oxygen in patients with obstructive sleep apnea? I mean, I think this study shows that there's a real need to develop future clinical trials to assess whether oxygen can be used as a therapeutic option for OSA-associated hypertension. I think a particularly interesting area would be in patients who have both OSA and resistant hypertension, where we know OSA is very prevalent, and where we know that medical management of hypertension has not succeeded. I think this would be an area that I would choose to explore. Certainly, this is a group where um, there are many patients, and we know from previous studies looking at similar populations who were recruited without necessarily the typical symptoms of sleepiness, for example, the SAVE trial, that CPAP usage is disappointingly low. I think potentially in these patients with relatively few symptoms, um, one could explore the effects of supplemental oxygen on OSA-associated resistant hypertension. Great. 
Now, do you have any final points you'd like to emphasize about your study? I think I'd, I'd just really conclude by saying that this was the first study to highlight the central role of intermittent hypoxia in morning elevations in blood pressure in patients with OSA. And I think it's a really exciting result. And I think it shows a need for future trials evaluating um, supplemental oxygen and its efficacy as a therapeutic option for OSA-associated hypertension. So I'd like to thank Dr. Turnbull for doing this. Uh, to the listener, to read the article discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, uh, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play. You can also subscribe um, uh, to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. Thank you for listening and have a great day.